Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a television first, Making a Monster sees a group of the world's leading forensic psychologists, psychiatrists and pathologists come together to share their own first-hand experiences and insights into the minds of serial killers, including Robert Black, Eileen Warnos and Levi Belfield. Starting this Monday, the 10th of February at 9pm, Making a Monster begins with a double episode featuring Rose West and Robert Maudsley, with a further brand new episode each week, Mondays at 9pm. But today, we're giving you access to an RTS screening Q&A with some of the key experts involved in the show. Special thanks to the Royal Television Society for screening the first episode of Making a Monster at the BFI Southbank and holding this Q&A. If you want to find out more, head to rts.org.uk. The Q&A featured the voices of the VP of Programming at a Networks UK, Dan Corn, Supplements Editor and Crime Club Editor at the Sunday Times, Karen Robinson, Chartered Forensic Psychologist at the University of Leicester, Dr Julian Boone. Geographic Profiler and Investigative Criminal Psychologist at Anglia Ruskin University, Dr Samantha Lundrigan. And Criminal Profiler at Birmingham City University, Professor Paul Britton. Some of the subject matter within this episode is often disturbing and contains graphic descriptions. Uh, Well, hello everyone. Um, Wasn't that amazing. Um, I've seen it twice now and it's still deeply, deeply shocking as the story unfolds. And it's rather amazing, isn't it, to think it was 25 years ago. That, that brought me up short a bit. It's, it seems they've never gone away. Um, so I'm Karen Robinson. I'm the, um, I work at Sunday Times where I edit Um, a crime fiction uh, newsletter bulletin called Crime Club. The first rule of Crime Club is you have to subscribe to Crime Club. Um, And if anyone wants to know any more about that, do come and see me afterwards. That's fiction, but I've noticed over the last few years that true crime and crime fiction are... Well, they're not exactly merging because, of course, in fiction you can make it up. But the qualities of storytelling and analysis and character making of both the criminals and the people who... Oh, sorry. The people who, who, um, who pursue them and try and work out where they came from, why they're doing it and how to stop them doing it. The, these stories are being increasingly told using... Um, the best techniques of, of of fiction and drama, as I think we've we've seen here, but obviously with the obvious uh, difference that they're true. Um, and so, just to introduce our panel, who who are um, the experts on whom, um, you know, quite a few uh, fictional characters have also been based, and I think who've given advice and inspiration to fiction writers are, well, Daniel Korn, who we've already heard from, who's the um, the uh, the um, senior vice president who, who 
brought all the, this series into being. And then we have uh, Paul Britton, Professor Paul Britton, who um, is a clinical psychologist, an organizational psychologist, and a forensic psychologist who said to me earlier, I'm just interested in people. Some of them happen to be criminals. <laughs> so that has been his specialism. He's helped very, he, he lectures at Birmingham City University on uh, forensic criminology and he has also helped the police enormously in working to uh, find and stop um, serial killers. Uh, next to him is um, Dr. Samantha Lundegren, who's an investigative psychologist who uh, is based at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. And her expertise lies in geographic profiling systems and what's called the spatial behavior of criminals. It's that you can get to know a criminal, particularly when you're looking for them and investigating them, as we discussed the other day, it's not so much inside their darkest mind, but where they buy their scratch cards might be, you know, what gives them away and shows them up and shows their patterns in the end. So um, the, although Sam is a, a psychologist, she's working with data. So it's very much a new way of, um, of looking at criminology. And then next to her is who we, and of course we saw them on the, on the telly, and um, Dr. Julian Boone, a chartered forensic psychologist and honorary senior lecturer in forensic psychology at the University of Leicester. And he's worked in uh, profiling um, and helping the police for over 35 years. So real experts here who, who <laughs> we're going to have a fantastic conversation with. But as, as we're the Royal Television Society here today, I'm going to start by asking Dan um, about how you decided on the way to tell these stories and then how did you get these um, experts to to work with you and and contribute to, to tell these stories in such a, a sort of responsible and well-analysed way? Well, this was um, the vision um, uh, and the skill of uh, David Howard and Rick Hall, uh, Monster Films, who really put this whole thing together. We, we when I say we, myself and my... Um, colleague and collaborator Diana Carter um, we're in the very privileged position of sitting in our uh, um, in the hallowed halls of A&E networks and and having incredibly talented producers come to us with these ideas and that's what David and Rick did um, they um, had done a brilliant film called Interview with a Murderer um, uh, Bert Spencer and the, the Carl Bridgewater case we we knew of their reputation for doing really innovative filmmaking and they came to us with this and said you know the the really unusual uh, point of what we're trying to achieve is to get the experts you know that not just you know the experts in their field but the country's leading experts to talk about this because I think the interesting these cases have been uh, talked about before Often, when you we have true crime series, it's the police investigators who, um, you know, are are the contributors. 
But where do the police investigators go when confronted by something like the horrors that were dug up from the garden at Cromwell Street? Well, they 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 come to these people, and uh, and these you know the, these are the real leaders in their field. So it was an unusual, um, unique proposition, and um, they carried it off brilliantly. Yeah, indeed. So I'd, I'd like to ask the experts, how was it for you? Um, being on uh, on a, a popular program, it's not an academic study. It's to, um, you know, it's, uh, all, I mean, it's not really entertainment, but it's, it's, you know, we want people to, you want people to watch it. It's, you're, you're talking to a mass, not a specialised audience. How, how did you, you feel about the opportunity to, to do that uh, on, on the series? Sam, do you want to start? start? Yeah. Um, well, for me, it was it was an easy decision. Um, right from the beginning, this um, series was pitched, uh, I think, all to all of us as trying to do it slightly differently, looking at uh, taking this genre into a different direction, really getting under the surface of these, you know, pretty well-known offenders. And I did ask myself at the beginning, is there any more we can that needs to, can be said about these? some of these people because there's been many many documentaries on them um and um i think my answer was yes there was because what um the production company and the network wanted to do is really to try and bring that understand the science underneath um looking at some of those techniques such as geographical profiling that hasn't really been looked at before and i also i grew up on a diet of true crime um you know documentaries and books and so on it's how it what took me into my into the field I'm in um you know fiction I'm still waiting I always thought I would be Clara Starling but I'm still waiting to actually be <laughs> Clara Starling but that's what got me into this field um and so uh it's it was a really exciting opportunity for me to be part of it Paul I know you've um, you're no stranger to to the media but how how did um what was the benefit to you and explaining your work of of participating in the programs? It's quite difficult, actually, because th there is so much that you still can't say. The things that happened are so appalling. You did hint at that, and, and I did think, I'm sure that was a moment for all of us when we thought, well, thank goodness, not going to say any more. But it's that balance of not shocking people so much that they are unable then to think, well, where does it take me? Is there anything that I can see in the life stories of these particular sorts of offenders that alerts me to what might be going on close to me? Is there a time when I should pick up the phone, even though I feel uncomfortable and embarrassed? Should I say, what about... <coughs> And it's just a hope that occasionally someone may be moved in that direction. And then the other part is that I think as it, as it came out towards the end, there are other young women who haven't been found yet. And if something can move it forward so just a few more families know what became of their loved ones, I think it's worth all of that. Right. And Julian... Well, I concur entirely with all that which has been said, and in particular the director and producer of um, Monster Films, because they 
got me on side, which I think was what your question was, um, because they assured me that there would be nothing salacious or gratuitous in terms of nastiness, all of which has been said by the previous speakers. Um, and indeed, from what I've seen, that has been the case. Um, have, it's have not been, some peep show. It have has you been stung be before? Uh, any of you by, by maybe being misrepresented in the media, trivialised, sensationalised? I've been disappointed with some of the things that I've been involved in, yeah, in terms of when I've seen the finished product, um, yeah. in terms of how salacious and just graphic, unnecessarily so, and focusing entirely on the, the crime and the offender and not giving a voice to the victims and so on, and uh, this has been um, a different experience. Excellent. That. So what, what's interesting about, um, we're, we're trying to, and the series will build, won't it, into the minds of, to look, look for maybe common factors as to what creates, um, you know, a serial killer, a monster. But I, I think, well, I've got a couple of questions. Is when do you, I mean, quite often you're not actually meeting the the offenders are you the the killers, Julian? Have you do, do you do your work before to help the police fi uh, well, find them? Uh, or yes, you're quite you right. You're quite right. Uh, most of the time, in my case, I get to see what that has been done and then work back from it. However, I do a great deal of uh, work with uh, parole board um, reports, uh, and then I get to interview the prisoners and do risk assessments and what have you. Um, and so it's a, almost like a symbiotic thing where it works in both directions. Um, and as everybody in the audience will see, I am a very old dog indeed. <laughs> and uh, one learns a few tricks in the way. <laughs> and and what, what is it like to, when you actually meet someone who's done such awful things? I mean, do they do they come across like a monster or can you can you pinpoint the moment when they turned into a monster? They're are all, they, are they monsters? Yes, They're sir. all different. Mm. Um, there yes. isn't the number 34 serial offender. Each one is a person. They each have a separate development, a separate story we mentioned the notion of evil. Um, I have a very narrow definition of what I regard as evil in this context. And for me, a person is truly evil if they come into the world with no deficits. So they come in with a full cognitive functioning uh, background, they're emotional, development is normal, all of the things are as they would be for most people. They come with a loving, caring family and all of the rest of it. And nevertheless, they choose, they find their pleasure, their delight is in harming, hurting, being cruel to other people, and it goes on. That, that for me, is true evil, where there is that clear choice. Now, most of the others behave in an evil way, but when you look again and again, you see the deficits. Some come with genetics, most come with family background, 
and the way the youngsters are treated and developed. And you see the tree branching and branching and, and you see, if you like, the healthy normal part becomes less and less flowering and the rest becomes prominent. Um, I hope it may be that people can see that mm. in the series that's coming. I agree with that entirely. Yes, what do you think? Uh, and so too I. Uh, and one of the great things about this particular series, it seems to me, is to dispel the myth, just as Paul said earlier on, that there is something like a generic serial killer or serial arsonist. They all have to be understood in what in science is known as the ideographic method, whereby each one has to be painstakingly understood in regard of their own individual circumstances and how it expresses itself in terms of criminal activity. Um, and it's no good just having broad brush data collection. You must have ideographic understanding of cases in order to understand and going back to parole boards uh, if you're uh, going to do risk assessments you can look at uh, sex offender treatment programs and we all saw what happened with war boys it was disaster mm. absolute disaster to use that approach you have to be able to interview understand and be able to take it forward in my arrogant humble opinion <laughs> and do, do you think with with the west it struck me that i i your point that it's family background and upbringing and terrible upbringings and terrible experiences can form but something particularly horrifying about the west is that it was in the family home. The whole thing took place under what looked from the outside to teachers, social workers and everybody else like a family. Mm. Well, I mean, um, yeah, uh, it, I mean, this case really shows the profound significance of the home in, in someone's criminal behaviour and for, for this couple, um, that family life and that uh, criminal life were inextricably linked. That you couldn't separate them at all and um, uh, you said it wasn't in plain sight. I think it was you in there, was it, in the documentary, which I, I completely agree. Uh, you know, the house, to all intents and purposes, looked quite normal, but what was going on behind closed doors was uh, unfathomable, you know, in terms of its depravity. Um, and um, it, was a, it, was a, it was sort of a perfect storm, those two together. Um, and, I, I, again, I can't remember who said, but I also agree that I think if they had never got together, I'm not sure this pathway would have been... Um, gone down. There are several things that coalesce here, but before that, it's important to recognise that thousands of youngsters come from dysfunctional backgrounds. They come from families that are not as we might like them. They don't all end up in this situation. And I have spent so much time over the years trying to help people in social services on occasion to understand that just because a youngster was offended against does not mean in their turn they will then offend against. So that's a very important distinction. Having said that, going back to the point that was just made, Cromwell Street was 
designed, redesigned into a house of complete pleasure. It didn't look like an ordinary house once you go in there. And remember, they progressed. Midland Road first, used as a place to kill, the fields used to bury. When they reached Midland Road, the design of the house allowed the development. Remember, Fred West was a builder. You have the upper floor that is turned into this rather crude boudoir, and it doesn't perhaps come out quite as well as it, as it could, but the photography arrangements for the room that Rose used were quite sophisticated um, through a wall. The, the lower floor below that is done out as a welcoming bar in red velvets and all sorts of other things. Then down you go, and as you go down to the lower parts of the house, down to where these poor young people were butchered, on the, the ceiling of the stairway there is this full life-sized poster of a woman in an erotic beckoning pose. And although it isn't Rose, it's as close to a picture of Rose photographically as you could get. Everything was built to take them into this particular function. Sorry. Right, and you know, that was, yeah, the home, the family home. I think we could talk um, for hours about the Wests, but this is the start of the series, so I'd just like to ask each of you to sort of enrich this discussion and, and open up the subject a bit more by telling, telling us a little bit about one of the other episodes that you found particularly fascinating to contribute to. What, me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I um, found them all fascinating, and collectively they do, as I say, illustrate how you cannot just talk about a generic form of such offenders, and they all have to be. But Aileen Warnos um, was... I won't say particularly interesting, because I thought they were all particularly interesting, um, was very much an interesting serial killer, simply because she is very, very atypical of female serial killers, um, in that she did fulfill what the FBI would call the criteria for serial killing, as in it was sequential, one, then the next, then the next, and so on like this. And that is very uncommon. Um, and is it also that she was working without a man partner? Uh, it, she was working both with a female partner, but also uh, on her own. And Robert Ressler, the FBI grandee who died last year, I think, um, said she was almost unique in that she would um, behave much more like a man in terms of serial killing than would a woman whom he said to me, and we went through all her interviews and so on like that, he said to me, um, normally when it's a woman it's a spree attack whereas this was just a calculated one after the other thing. So for that reason, I suppose, I won't say she was unique, but she was 
relatively unusual, as in very exceptionally unusual. And um, for dear old Bob, wrestler, um, to uh, single her out as being exceptional in that regard obviously makes it more unusual for me. Right. What about you, Sam? Um, again, they were all fascinating. Were they? Actually, Robert Maudsley didn't do much for me, I've got to be honest, when <laughs> that one. But in terms of the geographical behaviour, um, Robert Black stands out. So he's the infamous child killer who, um, in terms of his geography and how he used his environment, he was travelled extremely long distances. So he travelled pretty much the length of the UK with a base in London to Scotland. He abducted um, young girls um, and then uh, discarded their bodies in laybys close to motorways. And what's interesting for me about that is, or what it, what it shows very clearly to me, is that um, we know that serial killers, um, all offenders actually, not just serial killers, they don't randomly choose locations to offend in. They are tied um, to home bases usually. They are guided by familiarity. They like to know what to expect in different places, so they don't just randomly pray. And we can see that even with someone like Robert Black, who went across the country, he wasn't randomly using the environment. He had a job. His lifestyle fitted that behaviour. Um, he was a travelling um, van driver, and what he did is he used his lifestyle to facilitate his offending behaviour and select environments as he was going about his journey. And he kind of had a mobile base, if you like, so he didn't have that anchoring effect that we find time and time again with serial killers that keeps them relatively close to home in terms of how so they... a lot harder to catch then. Well, absolutely, and uh, investigatively really challenging. It involves six police forces investigation was 11 years in 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 uh, uh, and um 12 million pounds so you're right and that's that because if if crimes like that happen in a relatively small geographical environment the police will you know they're, they're very rare so it would be very likely that police will link them but when they're happening across you know 200 300 miles apart from each other then obviously the linking becomes much more difficult which was your oh well i, I would also talk about the Robert Black case. I, I worked the case. Um, but just before that, back to um, the, the Lady Wuornos. Uh, it is true that she was a serial killer, but in one sense, she shot the same man over and over again. Mm -hmm. If you look at the victim, you look at who he was, what he was, what his appearance was, how he was described, and you look at her background, her history, it is almost as though she's seeing someone else each time she chews, because she doesn't kill everyone she takes. She is a prostitute, she works the roads, and it's only the six or however many it ends up being. So I just offer that as a, a side comment. Black, I entirely agree with everything you've said. Again, a key about Black is, of course, he knew very well the area from which he abducted most of the children. That was a playground that he'd had as a much younger person. And he did, as you say, he, he deposited these poor people across mostly the Midlands. Mm. Um, and he was, he remained consistent in his behavior. He did what he did over and over again. And in a sense, it was that that allowed him to be finally caught because he took a, a young girl 
up at the borders and immediately the hunt came into being and mercifully the person who found the girl in the van was her father who mm. happened to be a policeman and um, on it goes. Mm. There we have an example of police professionalization uh, of the era because the police officer did not assault the uh, abductor. Right. Now, had it been one of my children, um, <laughs> I would be in jail for murder right now. It would now. be difficult. <laughs> I think, I mean, from, from a layperson's point of view, each episode is um, insightful and fascinating just because of the professional expertise of the clinicians talking about it. Um, Maudsley, um, I find fascinating Robert Maudsley simply because he's been rotting away in Wakefield in the basement of Wakefield prison for the past 45 years he's sort of kept in a glass box um, and he killed three of his victims three of his four victims in prison and just in the same way as um, Aileen Warnos is um, constantly sort of was killing her abuser Maudsley was killing his it was his father and um, and I, I found that truly fascinating I think the a couple of the other cases that I think were particularly intriguing. Levi Belfield, probably because there's been a lot about Belfield recently. Uh, Martin Clunes uh, played um, Colin Sutton in the recent ITV drama, Manhunt. Um, Colin Sutton was the person who uh, brought Belfield to book. And Belfield, I mean, he, he I, I, I got such respect for the clinicians because they uh, treat each, um, each of these people as a patient. But I think Belfield is a particular, the murder of Millie Dowler and Amelie de Lagrange is a particularly egregious little shit. And so I, I think it was quite interesting to sort of, and, and didn't seem to have had this, quite the same misfortunes in childhood perhaps as some of the others. And the final one that I was fascinated with was John Wayne Gacy, because, I mean, John Wayne Gacy was probably the most prolific, but he was also the most sort of socially adept in many ways. I mean, there's a famous picture of him with Rosalind Carter. Um, he was a sort of a, a, a democratic um, party worker at the time, and he got this picture with Rosalind. He was actually quite, unlike several of the other cases who seem utterly dysfunctional, unable to sort of interact with the, uh, the world outside, Ga John Wayne Gacy was not like that. But at the same time as he was having pictures taken with Rosalind Carter, he was also burying young men beneath his house. So I'm fascinated by that dichotomy, but they're all different. And as I say, the, the thing that unites them is the opportunity to see them through the eyes of um, truly objective clinicians, as opposed, you know, as it said at the end of that thing, the moral filter that we all impose on these things, which is why the newspapers can make have such a field day whenever one of these cases takes place. Um, Whereas actually this series tries to flip that round and said, well, these are the people with the expertise who can truly tell you where this distorted person comes from. I hope you're enjoying listening to the fascinating insight given by Dr. Boone, Professor Britton and Dr. Lundrigan. If you want to hear more from the forensic psychologists, psychiatrists and pathologists featured in the TV series, Making a Monster The Tapes has exclusive interviews available for you to listen to. Just search for Making a Monster wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. And also, please make sure to rate, review and share. Do you think any of these, um, these criminals, I mean, I think some of them are dead now, but do you think any of them have ever expressed genuine remorse? 
I do. Sorry. I was going to say, I, you can have my view for nothing. No. <laughs> Not unless it comes up for parole board, which none of this lot will. Um, uh, remorse is not something they can genuinely get. As I'm fond of saying, if you are diagnosed and carefully assessed for psychopathy and absence of guilt, it's completely untreatable and you can't go down the shops and buy some uh, conscience. <laughs> And you, you, you agree with that, you two? You don't, you've not seen genuine remorse? Most of them don't have the capacity to feel that. Mm. It's simply not there. Now, whether it was ever there is an interesting question. And if it ever was and how it became lost is an interesting exercise and probably the subject of an entirely different <laughs> programme. <Yeah. laughs> there you are. And so... Um, so the, these are, you know, difficult cases that, I mean, we, we have the, the TV version, but, but this is your lives, you three. The, this is what you, it's your job, it's your, your passion, your expertise. You, you, you become expert in the awful ways of how uh, murderers are called, uh, are, are formed, how they behave. How do you... How do you sleep at night? <laughs> I mean, how, how, what, what do you do to stay completely focused, but at the same time not have this in your head all the time when you're living your normal life? I can probably answer, maybe answer that um, slightly differently because I do spend a lot of my time in front of a computer analysing data. Um, oh, it's and patterns worthwhile. And data. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am slightly re somewhat removed. I do go and interview offenders. Um, I think it's really important to, to hear their voices, to give that, bring to life, you know, the dots on the map that I look at and look for patterns in. Um, but I'm not working the cases that um, oh. my esteemed colleagues here have, have worked time and time again. For me, though, when I do um, advise on investigations, um, I just try and obviously put it, leave it there in a box but it's very difficult and I do wonder sometimes but I don't know how do know, you do that then? well I don't and I don't actually I don't know that I do because actually I'm not I don't know what I'm comparing my own behavior to so I am consciously always aware of my environment around me because I look at where crime happens and there's uh, the that perfect those those factors that make you know something like what we've seen today and for the rest of the series happen you know, I run a lot. I run a lot in the countryside. I don't know if anyone in here runs, but I, I would, I, I wonder if when the people are running, they think about body disposal sites and where <laughs> certain people might be around the corner. I do. So I'm now. actually thinking I probably am perhaps not dealing with it. Perhaps well, I suppose it's, it's harder for you because you can't slam the prison door and no, leave them behind indeed. bars. I'm just always evaluating the environment for, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bad things. How do you stay, well, stay cheerful? Well, uh, two, two things. Uh, that I never get asked about this with the media, but 
I'm every bit as interested in who goes up the slope as who goes down the slope. So whether it's old Ma Teresa of Calcutta who gets the Nobel Prize, now she was a bombastic old bag, but she <laughs> used it used it for complete good. And who is old Myra Hindley of the Moors? Uh, and I want to know the difference. And Paul said something very similar earlier on where he said he is very interested in people and their personalities, some of whom can be uh, offenders. And I, I come from a very similar thing. And indeed, excuse me, data has an excellent case. I hope I didn't give a misinterpretation there. I think a couple of things. The first is that this is for me, and I'm, I suspect it's true for, for others, Whenever you are involved in, in, in any of these cases and you go home, you don't bring it home with you. You leave a bit of yourself behind. Mm. And that is ah. inescapable. You, you can't. You end up slightly diminished by what you've been involved in. I'm fortunate in that this work is only a part of what I... I'm an NHS clinician by origin. So... It's helping people to get better, understanding what's wrong with them, and it's being able to discharge people who are now better rather than who are going off to spend the rest of their years in prison or whatever it happens to be. So you leave a little bit of yourself there? How can you not? Yeah. So that, that's a big price to pay for, for what you do. The difficulty is... All of you, really. You don't know that when you start. I mean, nobody asks you this question when the phone rings the first time. And then the, the, the other part is, how do you say, no, I don't want to do that? Mm. If, if the SIO or whoever it is rings up and says, look, we have this, we're stuck with this, could you come and have a look? What are you going to say? Well, no, get on with it. No, you, you, you do what you can. Anyway. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And um, just to, to make it a bit broader, someone said, um, I can't remember which expert it was, not one of you three, in the program, which I thought was very interesting, is that serial killing is a malign waste product of a dysfunctional culture. So, you know, are we all implicit in this? Is it, are we all blindly involved? Yeah, I mean, that, that was Eric Cullen, and he has fairly extreme views on, um, uh, you know, the role of sort of society and community. Uh, not, not, I don't think his suggestion is that we're all capable of those acts. I think he's sort of suggesting, as he said, that it's a byproduct of, of a society that is terribly consumed with itself. Um, so I, it, without Eric here, I, I wouldn't sort of second guess it, but I think that 
it's what's quite interesting um, culturally, I think, is how the serial killer is viewed. It, it comes out actually of a case with Stephen Griffiths, who so revels in the name the press give him, known as the crossbow cannibal, that he actually answers, when he's asked the name in court, he says, I'm the crossbow cannibal. And I think that the, the, the objective of this series is to go beyond that and go beyond the sort of shibboleths and um, stereotypes and to say, is to sort of treat the serial killer to a certain extent as patient and try to get inside that. So I would, I think whilst Eric, you know, says, makes a, an interesting point, I personally am not sure that he is suggesting that everybody has a serial killer inside them. Good. Yeah, so don't worry. <laughs> You're all right. And the, I think the, the um, what we're, we're, we're building up here and the programme is building up is, you know, what the holy grail of this is inside the mind of the serial killer. And how do you, how do you get there? I mean, you, you could do it through data, you could do it through reading their histories, but what is it that takes you, takes you to that place where you have to leave a bit of yourself behind? What, what, are, the, what are the methods? What are the, the techniques? What, what, is it imagination? Is it empathy? I suspect it's slightly different for each of us. Oh, and, good. But, well, but this is one of the, to me, splendid possibilities from a series like this, because each of us here approach this from a slightly different psychological perspective. And it's only now that we begin to see them coalescing. And I think that may take us to places where we haven't been yet. Um, so, so speaking just for myself rather than for anyone else, for me, it, there's the consulting room. And it, it's there that I am able to work with all sorts of people. So that's people who are offenders, people who are victims, people who are neither, and then work very deeply with profoundly uh, disturbed, profoundly committed offenders. And it takes time. It takes commitment, working with them, building the necessary relationship in order to understand who they are. The difficulty is, and I'm sure we'll hear the same here, is that the more involved you are in the outside crimes, the more of those victims' shades are sitting in the corner behind you saying, hey, what about me? It's all very well getting, sorry, Pally with the person who did these things, but don't forget what happened to me. Mm. And that tension is always there, but that's one of the ways in which you begin to learn. So that then when you go into the field and you are looking at the scene of the offence, you're looking at the post-mortem, you have your hands-on experience, you have the literature, you have your training. And remember, it goes back a 100 years or more. So this isn't something that sort of popped out of a cloud a few weeks ago. These things have been happening for a long time and you're able to look and that's where the dispassionate approach that I think has been alluded to becomes important. So you have to learn to be able to look at the remains, if that's what it is, of some poor woman, some poor child, and not vomit. You have to be able to look and understand the sequence, the process, and then begin to understand how did it come about? What happened? What happened next? 
who was this person? Why? And then you begin to understand, or you have to try to understand the why. Once you're understanding those factors and those things of the crime scene itself, you're into your patch. Mm -hmm. You're looking at then the wider geography as well. Where does a person like this come from? How do they do this? How do they do that? And you're able then to bring this to the investigating officers because what they're interested in, they're not remotely concerned with, did this person have a sad childhood? Mm. What they want to know is, who did it? Where can I lay hands on them? How can I stop them? And that's what we mm. hopefully try to help with. And where, where Julian, have you, can you remember any um, examples of when you've been looking at um, a, a killer, a serial killer, a and there's a, a light bulb moment where it's like, oh, now I get it. Is that through just the I think conversation? Or? I think it's a more a progressive thing over the years. And the sorts of conclusions that I would have had 35, 40 years ago um, it would be very different now because um, you do gather experience. And the classic thing in a master's thesis is is forensic uh, psychological profiling an art or a science? Mm -hmm. And the answer is has to be both, mm -hmm. because you have to have experience. Um, and I would say too that uh, you do have to leave stuff back at the office. Um, it can be more easy sometimes than others. But uh, it happens that my girlfriend is in the audience, and I'm not going to embarrass her now, but I know what her answer would be. She would tell you that I am extraordinarily, well, I would like to say laid back. She would say dozy. And that means that you can carry more because you can just be of a relaxed personality. And I, if you were wound up easily by everything, whoa, never be in the field for 30 years plus. Mm, that makes sense. Um, so for me, just uh, I, I guess my starting point is always that point in time and space on a map, but then it's it's not just about just looking at that point pattern, it's, it's, it's understanding the wider geography in which those crimes have happened, it's understanding really what we're trying to understand is the mental map of the offender, getting into in trying to understand what their perceptions of their environment, how they're using their environment to, um, to to select their victims and select the locations where they're going to commit their crimes, and then working back from there to the point where, as I said at the, at the beginning, I think, maybe, um, you know, we can now uh, take those locations of a crime series and actually use those to predict the likely location of where an offender might live, which has obvious implications for police investigation. Absolutely. And do you... So do you think, with, with your participation in this programme, which will obviously, the series will be watched by many people, one hopes, and... Um, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of, yeah, <laughs> millions. Millions. Yeah, huge, huge audience share. But do you think it's important that, you know, the rest of us, you know, cease from a bit of, you know, Love Island and all the rest of it and actually educate ourselves on you know, the dark side of what can happen to people, how they can become like this, the awful things they can do, the effects. I mean, do, do, you, do you want to spread your word? You're, 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 you work as experts, you lecture to 
interested students who are, but do, do you think that we should know more? We should understand more? I find that yeah. difficult to, to answer. The notion of being prescriptive is I, I okay. struggle with. The, the only thing that I am would be concerned about, and I don't think we've fallen into the trap here, is avoiding giving a guidebook to potential serial killers in how not to be caught. Mm. That, that's, that's important. And I don't think we've fallen into that. Mm. No, that no. I think that is important. No, as I well. never thought of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with Love Island, just to say. Yes, I, don't, I don't want you to feel embarrassed about that. Um, so, uh, but look, I, I think, is it, is it important for people to know? I, I, you know, I think it is. I think that uh, I started when I was introducing it. You know, we, we, we have a sort of a, a, a brand promise, which is that the truth is worth pursuing. And I think that that is what we're trying to get at. We're trying to make a contribution. We're, I mean, I say we, we're through these brilliant experts. Is it important that people understand? Yes, I think it is important, always. I think the search for sort of deeper meaning, deeper understanding, um, particularly, um, as Paul has said, if there are others out there who somehow have not been identified, um, you know, it makes it all the more important to tell these stories. But, as I say, the unique thing that Monster Films have managed with this is to tell it from a very unusual perspective yeah. through the through these clinicians. Yeah. Yeah, the real experts at the heart of it. So I wonder, I think it's time for it's time. some questions from the audience. Yeah, if there are any, yeah. So have we got a mic? Or? Let's see. Oh, there we are. So who'd like to ask the first question? This lady here, long dark hair. You sort of just touched a little bit on, on this question in terms of what its importance. Um, uh, show, showing sort of the behind behind the mind or within the mind of um, these horrible people, uh, but do you think that there's a um, I guess a, any kind of responsibility in terms of giving them a, giving them a stage on a on a um, big screen for lots of people to sort of see what their brains are like and what their minds are like and kind of digging into that and then from the experts perspectives does that play into um driving that sort of serial killer mind this potential for notoriety or to be maybe on a show like making a monster is that any do you do you think there's any issues there that is something that was very much a part of the thinking, and if I recall rightly, the discussions mm. that we had at the beginning of the making of this um, series. And I hope, I think, we've stayed on the right side of mm. that. But the point that you're making is really quite important. If I, oop, sorry. If I can take just a moment, you, you no doubt remember that there was a film called, I think it, well, it was about a serial killer anyway very well known, it became very popular here in the United Kingdom, and I was asked by someone at the Home Office at the time, did I think it would have any impact? My answer was, I think you'll see an increase in serial killing, and we did. So the point that you are making is really very important, and I think it's equally important that people who make programs, who write books, and all of the rest of it, take this very much into their thinking. 
So it's not the offender that's the hero. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I think I've had conversations with, um, you know, around how we describe and how we situate these people because, you know, there, there, is, there is out there, you know, this... They do get infamous. They do get well-known. I mean, um, even people who, you know... Who was it um, who killed John Lennon? I know he's not a serial killer. Mark but Chapman. Mark Chapman, what did he say? I was the biggest fucking nobody till I killed That's the biggest it. fucking anybody in history, you know? Um, and I had this discussion recently at a conference when we were talking about lone wolf killers. And you think about that terminology, lone wolf, it kind of feels like, yeah, you're going out there and you're a wolf. And we decided maybe we should call them lone poodles. That just would be... Do you know what I mean? So it's just... Sometimes it's about the language and how we're describing these people. And again, I think this documentary series has managed to find that balance well. And I, I would agree, um, particularly with this... Excuse my language, um, by the way, sorry. It wasn't your language. It was <laughs> no, you're right. it wasn't my language. <laughs> um, <laughs> Almost after the watershed, but, don't worry about it. Well, just to, just to say um, that this series, you only will have to look at the episode on Belfield to realise just how unglamorous a figure he is. Uh, and it is given in due force just that. Not unduly negative. Believe me, you can't be unduly negative with Belfield. Um, and this is very truly reflected in the um, episode. So, uh, yes, it is a concern that you're glamorising anything, but... I would say watch the eight episodes and tell me who comes out as glamorous. These people are not glamorous. And Belfield was incredibly cowardly in my view. Mm -hmm. And this is not leaving anybody with any illusions to the contrary. Thanks. Next one. Let's see. Oh, yep, there we have. Um, hi, I'd uh, like to make a, a comment and ask a question. Firstly, um, congratulations. I thought it was uh, wonderful. And um, I, I'd say this is very important. And for me, the most important thing about this is the argument that had somebody been able to uh, help the four-year-old Rose West um, before she went down this path, then how many lives could have been saved? Um, and I think, you know, understanding the lives of these people and tracing back the roots to, to that early childhood is hugely important and could really make a difference. Um, but my question was, I was involved in a program last year where we brain scanned three people who had committed murder and we found that all three of them had differences in their brains to the average person. And I was wondering um, what you think you would have found had you been able to brain scan the, uh, the, the brains of the people in this series. I think the answer is we, we don't know the answer to that in, in detail. It is true that some studies looking at particular sorts of, for example, personality disorder, do seem to be seeing that there are consistent anomalies but we're not well enough developed yet to know where that is going. Um, and 
it's equally the case, we know that over the years, over the developmental period, um, brains develop as well. So it's never quite clear um, where the, um, the, the changes, the alterations, the deficit, if you like, in the, um, the organic, the brain, where, where that arises as a consequence of developmental experience or to what extent it was there genetically or at the beginning. So I think that is a very important question. I think it's something that we're going to learn a lot more about probably over the next 15 years. That, that would be my expectation. I don't, does that help? Thank you, yes. Okay, sorry. Probably a last question. Okay, yep, last question, I'm afraid. So who's got the last question? Indeed. I was just intrigued by the production challenges that you must have faced uh, making the series when you presumably didn't have access to, uh, you know, the, the, the key players. Um, and But you're here trying to sort of tell the stories about, about them and, and how you went about that. Um, uh, I mean, it was terribly realistic with, you know, the way that you re recreated the scenes. But I, I was just interested in making a documentary about something where you you don't have, uh, uh, don't have access. Mm. I mean, th this, is the, uh, this is the skill of the filmmakers, Rick and David, down here, and you should, you should have a chat with them because they really, um, they've done a wonderful job. Um, it is difficult, I think, um, working out what you reconstruct in these situations. Um, and I think that they sort of managed to judge it incredibly well. Um, you know, you can't you can't rely on archive. Um, there's, there's a whole range of issues, and some of them driven by economics, but also aesthetics. I mean, you can't um, simply lump in a load of archive. So I think they did brilliantly in, first of all, finding uh, people who look so remarkably like Fred and Rose, but then, um, which was extraordinary. Poor actress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but al but also this the sort of aesthetic, the way they did it, I think, was incredibly skillful. So, but do I mean talk to the chaps down here? Actually, you can see Rick. He's on the right here playing the part <laughs> of a security guard. Um, that just shows his commitment to the filmmaking. He actually put himself in it. He's got a starring role. I think we've got to wrap up there. Yeah, so, well, that's a, a great way to end, I think, bringing it back to, you know, the art of television and the clever arts of television, the resourcefulness, the imagination, the empathy, and, of course, sourcing the right um, experts, the right voices to make a really unique, original and important series of programs. Um, so I'd just like to say that Making a Monster premieres on Monday the 10th of February, 9pm, on Crime Plus Investigation, which you've already heard, but I'll say it again, is available on Sky, Virgin, BT and TalkTalk, Talk, and Crime Plus Investigation is the home of true crime. You heard it here first. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for coming. That's it for this episode of Inside Crime and Investigation, which just leaves me to point you towards Making a Monster, The Tapes, on whatever app you're listening to this on. Leave us a note in the review on your podcast app or get in touch on social media. Just tag it with hashtag MakingAMonster or search for at Crime and Investigation. 
Over at crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, you can also find more information on the series, profiles on all the serial killers and much more. And finally, make sure you set Crime and Investigation's Making a Monster, the TV show, to record, Mondays, 9pm. This episode of Inside Crime and Investigation was hosted by me, Chloe Frost, edited by Sam Pearson, with thanks to RTS for the audio recording.